Okay, so I lied to you all, and I apologize for it. I'll explain shortly. So, uh, I, I tend to... I never tend to re-record these things, but I did it this time because my son was crying in the background, and it was a little bit noticeable. Um, and, uh, I don't know, he's upset because, you know, he, he we won't let him do what he wants to do. So my wife is dealing with him at the moment. Um, I tend to record these intros at 6.30, which is during the bath time. Uh, she does the bath, I put him to bed. That's how it tends to work. Um, anyway, my name is Dr. J.P. Gerald. I am the host of this show on Standardized English. We talk about the linguistically, racially, and neurologically minoritized. Sometimes it changes the order of that. doesn't matter. Today, we're going to talk about something that's similar to what I do. I'm talking to a podcaster about their podcast. I'm talking to Emily Davis Hale uh, about their podcast, uh, Reclaiming Jane, Jane being Jane Austen, and um, their choice to take sort of a canonical figure and one whose work has been rarefied, and, I, and I'm not saying f not for good reason, but has obviously existed, not only is she British, but white, female, etc., um, in a way that makes it inaccessible to people, um, and in a way that has been used to shame other sorts of authors. So um, I'm really interested in this conversation. I think their work is really important, and I'm, I'm hoping that this will be a good episode. But when I said I lied to you, it's because I said I had several episodes in a row with authors about their books. I do have two more, because by now you will have heard the previous one with Valerie Friedland. I do have two more that are scheduled, and so the two after this will also be authors. But I forgot about this one. Sorry, Emily. But anyway, so this is the episode here. The link to my book is in the show notes, and the uh, Patreon is also there. I hope you enjoy this, and otherwise, I will see you in the other side. So, folks, welcome to Unstandardized English. Uh, you know that. I said that about 30 seconds ago. Uh, so I am here with Emily Davis-Hale, and uh, they are one of the hosts of Reclaiming Jane, the podcast about Jane Austen, and um, sort of a, I don't know, Reclaiming the Discourse, I guess. On, yeah, that's uh, kind of the idea around it. Yeah, on, uh, on her work. So um, if you could... Tell the people a little bit about yourself and the work you do in general, and, or I guess study, you know what I mean. Uh, and then we can talk about the podcast and sort of the way I'm sort of approaching this conversation is sort of the similarities between what you're trying to do and what I'm trying to do with this is take um, maybe unspoken assumptions and sort of trying to challenge them um, in a more accessible format because there are there have always been critical academics who try to challenge things inside of journals and nobody cares so <laughs> yeah so i am a phd candidate right now in anthropology um unrelated to jane austen none of my training has anything to do with jane austen uh, i work on mayan linguistics like classic mayan um but my best friend was an english major and both of us enjoyed Austin a lot. Uh, and so 
at some point during the pandemic, she sent me a text and said, hey, hear me out. What if we started a podcast about Jane Austen, but also talked about history and pop culture and tried to move the conversation forward a little bit in a way that we enjoy doing? Um, if anyone has ever listened to one of our episodes, it's basically just the way that she and I have conversations. Um, we just happened to record it and clean out some of the ums. Uh, so it was sort of a, a very personal project for us just to be able to bring these kinds of conversations and externalize our thoughts uh, and talk about not even necessarily critiques of Jane Austen. We do get into critiques, um, but talk about these topics in a way that, like you said, is not constrained to like academic journals that no one is ever going to read. Um, we wanted to make them accessible, which is why it's in a podcast format so that it's just freely distributed um, and bring these discussions and Jane Austen in general to a wider audience than might seek her out. Got to unmute myself. Right. So, cause I had the, anyway, uh, yeah, no, I think that's really valuable because even I, you know, I was an English major too, um, many years ago now. And, you know, I've read probably four of the novels, right? Um, and, you know, I enjoyed them, but, well, not all of them, but I enjoyed some of the ones that I read, but there's just sort of a stuffiness, not in the work, I mean, sometimes, but in, in the, the rarefied air that her work tends to occupy. And I do understand the importance of it, especially for, you know, advancing ideas that were not really being talked about at the time. Um, and so I don't want to diminish that importance. But as ever, it's rarely the actual author that is the issue. Not only is she literally not here, but I just mean in the sense that it's the people who have adopted her as a representative of things that, you know, let's just say don't need any more representatives. <laughs> yeah, our our primary tagline is, you know, Jane Austen for fans on the margins. But um, secondary to that, we sort of ask that rhetorical question, you know, uh, for you, is Austen too straight, too white, too academic? And we're not really talking about Jane Austen herself there. Um, one of the bad faith critiques we get is, oh, well, you can't blame Jane Austen for being white. Like, I'm also white. I'm not blaming myself for that. That's something you can't control. We're talking about the, the discussions surrounding her and the people who monopolize those conversations about her work, especially the ones who like to say that basically Jane Austen is above reproach. Like, no, she, there, there's some, some good faith critiques that we could make there, um, which we tried not to shy away from in the podcast. Um, but also most of the toxicity is in the, um, the primary community surrounding her works. Yeah. It's kind of like, uh, Austen studies. Right. Like, yeah. What, 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 you know, what do we might classify it as such? Right. Because although there are exceptions, a lot of these authors that are placed in, in, in under this pedestal had more to say than we give them credit for. You know, that doesn't mean that there couldn't have been a wider range of voices being listened to, but still like with rare exceptions, you weren't getting to the sort of, level of respect, and I know a lot of people didn't get their respect while they were alive, but you know what I mean, um, 
without doing things a little bit differently. Right? That's always been true. There are exceptions, but like that's still always been true of, of a lot of art is that like even if there were a lot of mainstream things in it, a lot of them were doing things that were somewhat subversive in some ways. And I feel like a lot of that stripped away um, when we sort of flattened these people into the images we have of them and their work. You know, yes, there are some some similarities between the characters in the books. <laughs> uh, but every, every, most authors have themes. So, you know, recurring themes. So that in itself, and, and that's also the world that she knew. So, you know, what are we going to, I do to some extent, especially now, when people say, well, you told me to write what I know and this is what I know. I'm like, well, then maybe we won't need to hear from you. Like, <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, then you maybe don't need to say anything. Right. Um, but, uh, it's a little bit different back then. And when people try to come up with what you just said in terms of like, well, how can we blame her for the era she was, she was in? And it's like, well, that's not really what people are saying or what you all are saying, you know? So how would you describe like maybe like a typical episode for somebody that, you know, what, what, what you, what you focus on in one episode in particular? Well, we have a pretty standard we standardized our format really early on, which has been very helpful for us. Um, so we read each of her novels um, section by section. We've gone in chronological order of publication. We're on Persuasion right now, where we do a few chapters at a time and discuss each of those um, in every episode. But we choose a topic each time, sort of a lens to read the section through and to guide discussion, um, partly so that we don't just stall out somewhere. Um, but in addition to that, I talk about some kind of relevant historical topic. And my co-host Lauren talks about a pop culture phenomenon that she sees as being connected to this. Um, so every episode very much is devoted to... Um, giving the historical context that Jane Austen was writing in, as well as saying, but there are also universal themes that we can see even in our current media. See, I think that one of the issues that people have, it's not just Austen, but really, you can say this with history books too, right? Is that people will say, understandably, I don't understand what this has to do with me, right? Even people who look like the people in the books and the people in the historical texts will say, I don't understand what this has to do with me. And that's, again, not the fault of the person writing at that time. They couldn't think what was going to be happening 190 years later or whatever it is, right? or, or I guess 210 or something, depending on which novel you're talking about. Um, but that's the fault of not just American, but a lot of education systems for not doing a good job of contextualizing things for more than a century, not just Austin, but any of these things, right? I understand if I'm a kid, and I was obviously a child, and I'm sitting there in 1995, and I'm reading about, you know, European wars, and I'm just like, okay, you know, you know, there's a lot of them. They did that a lot. All right, right? But now, although the way it was taught was 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 not compelling, and I think a lot of this is people are bad at teaching, uh, I know... The interesting things about, for example, the Norman invasion, I don't care about the Norman invasion, but I care about the way it affected the English language now, right? Like, and that is relevant to me, not just because I was a language teacher for however many years and because I write about language, you know, mostly as a side hobby these days. Uh, but they didn't say any of that, you know, they just like, here's a war. Okay. 
right? And then you would get the same thing about, you know, um, English society at the time of Austin was writing, but they won't connect it to, to how we live now, where it's like, it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> you know, the world's changed a lot, but like, it's not like, it's such a short period of time in human existence that we really need to understand that there are direct impacts from 1812 or whatever to to now. And I'm not really sure why people don't want to do that. I think I, I have some suspicions. Because <laughs> uh, if you acknowledge the positive impacts, then you have to acknowledge the negative impacts of what people were doing back then. Because that would make people acknowledge that the fact that slavery was 150 years ago doesn't mean that it went away in our, you know, so a lot of things anyway. Yeah, it's interesting that some of the history topics I bring up that are the most relevant to the way our world has been shaped since then, um, like the ubiquity of the British military, um, and perpetuating colonialism. Those are some of the ones that unsurprisingly get the most pushback that people are the most upset that we're talking about. And we don't necessarily get a lot of um, direct negative reviews. People will make comments to us sometimes. Um, but we saw a couple of years ago, one of the primary Jane Austen museums in England um, started talking about the Austin family's connection to slavery in what they referred to as the West Indies. And people were so angry that that topic would even be brought up. But that's one of the things that Jane Austen had some connection to and sort of in an uh, indirect way wrote about um, that has really mostly shaped our world. Um, and it's... Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely not surprising the things that get uh, picked out for outrage, um, but those are also the things that have had the most impact. And I think it's it's valuable both to call out that connection explicitly and to be able to see a a perspective on those happenings that are embedded in that world. Because Jane Austen obviously has a very different idea of British militarism and colonialism than we do now. Yeah, there's something about the British that makes it so hard for them to just deal with their past and present. I This is a recurrent theme of my show, um, mostly because I enjoy making fun of the British, but uh, it's just because, as I've said on this show before, no matter how hard Americans will try to pretend that the impact of slavery wasn't as bad as it was and is, they can't pretend it didn't happen, right? And I, obviously there are people who pretend Holocaust and all that stuff didn't happen, but like for, for reasons that I'm not really certain of, well, but I mean in a good way, we at least, even the people who, oh, well, it was a war in Northern, they know slavery happened. Like they know that, right? And so... The only issue is how do we deal with it? Some people, I don't want to deal with it or whatever, but they can't, they don't, they can't pretend it didn't exist, right? Whereas partially from a literal logistical reason in the sense that slavery was literally here, like it was here in the country, right? Uh, and therefore people can call to their ancestors who were in the same place 
And it's harder to pretend that that just didn't happen to someone's great grandfather or whatever it is. Right. And I can just show you like the lineage that I have or something like that. Right. But if you're in a little tiny island all the way over there and most of the colonialism was happening all the way over there, then it's, it really like, this doesn't excuse it, but I totally understand why you, especially in that time when you weren't looking at it on the television. And then even until more recently, you didn't have to look at it. Right. Uh, think about the difference between when, uh, Elizabeth, not the, not the first one, the recent one was crowned and, and Charles, right? They didn't really have to talk about that when she was, cause it was, wasn't really on television. So we don't think about it. And now there's so many people who are just mad that we're talking about it during this coronation. And it's just like, well, uh, we, uh, we know you can't look away from these things that everybody else has been saying for so long. What, what, what I think happens with people is they're just like, why are you bringing this up now? It's like, we've been bringing it up forever. It's just that you can't really run away anymore. And that's why they're so mad, you know, because they know what happened, right? Or miraculously, forget happened, which makes it a passive thing. They know what they did. And to acknowledge it, to acknowledge your complicity in it is to also acknowledge the way you've benefited from it and to admit that, you know, you, you, there's there's blood on your hands. And I understand from a human perspective why it is hard to sit with. Um, and there's also a whole thing about militarism because there is a way to say, well, well that war was just. Right. Oh, well, they're the soldiers, so they're heroes and all this stuff, which is certainly not a purely British thing, um, which is a little bit different from, you know, thinking that uh, a, a plantation owner is justified. So. Yeah, I definitely think there's there's very, very um, British shades to this, especially in conversations surrounding Austin and what she may have known or her family's involvement or even just what she writes in her books. Um, and I think for a lot of people, the implication that Jane Austen like knew about slavery and colonialism feels like a very personal attack to them. Um, I think sometimes it comes off as the people who are bringing up these topics saying these things were here all along and you didn't pay attention to them. And that's, that's not really what it is. I mean, a lot of these things aren't explicitly discussed in Jane Austen's books. Um, I'm not particularly familiar with like her correspondence, but I don't think she really touched on a lot of those things. Understandably, because when you're just a middle class white lady living through these things, you know, most people aren't talking about the broad strokes of like sociopolitics in their personal correspondence or their diaries or whatever. Um, but yeah, there, there is definitely, um, I have seen a lot of people who just want to sweep that under the rug and say like, okay, you can have those conversations, but not in this space. It's not appropriate for this. Um, which is absolutely wild because Jane Austen was a real person living in, in incredibly transitional, um, historical period. There was so much going on both in England and around the world, like politically and socially, religiously. Um, and there's so many fascinating topics that you can just like pull at a thread and 
open up of like a whole new world of understanding about the world that she was living in and things that Jane Austen and her contemporaries would have just taken for granted. Um, and I think learning more about that world is one of, to me, the most exciting things about doing this very particular kind of work. Um, before we started the podcast, I had read Pride and Prejudice and that was it. Uh, but really diving into more of her books and picking up on the little things that just get mentioned maybe once, maybe twice, uh, and seeing how that's relevant and, you know, why does that even get a mention? Um, things that wouldn't cross your mind if you were also living during the Regency period in Jade Austen's same, you know, socioeconomic status. Um, and just that also for me brings to mind, you know, one of the things that we're living with right now that someone in 200 years will pick up a thread and go, oh, but look at all of the things that are behind this. That's exactly what I was going to say, because I think there is some real serious projecting that people do because what they because Jane Austen specifically and also Shakespeare, because he also didn't grow up rich or anything like that. Right. But we're talking about Austen. Um, is not, you know, literally King Leopold, right? Uh, or literally Queen this or whatever, right? And therefore not personally responsible for some of the atrocities. And is more or less just a person, if we, if we didn't know the novels, right? Uh, then us pointing out or you pointing out, I guess, uh, that uh, she probably knew some stuff, just because if you were alive, you probably knew some stuff. Uh, people feel like they're being implicated in what they just sort of know but aren't doing anything about. And they're saying, well, she gave us so much with these books that how dare... You say she didn't do enough to solve the world's problems, which is not what anyone's saying. <laughs> but you can see how the, the the train of thought goes into this dark tunnel of like, you're like, wait a second, wait a second, what happened? How did this happen? <laughs> how did you get all the way over here? <laughs> like, like, chill out. Because I, I see it in people and it's like, when I say that I understand, I don't, I really am not trying to let people off the hook, but I'm also, if I didn't pretend I understood it would also be harder to combat these things because like I not on these particular issues but like there were plenty of things that and I'm not saying I know everything now but like there were plenty of things that I don't know that I was ignoring but I wasn't focusing on when I was younger right yeah I have made a point because I've done these studies and and you know this work to to take an interest in things that I really didn't know very much about or knew about but didn't have any details on right which i think is more where a lot of people are it's less that they don't know anything it's more especially now with the internet like people kind of know a lot of stuff but they don't know everything about it and they don't know details about it and like i'm gonna say there's so much stuff out there i don't blame people for not knowing everything right but i think the implication goes back to this is a person who did not have individual immense power right and, and you know there's relative societal power but you know what i mean and because of that i as a reader who also does not believe myself to have individual immense power and therefore can't stop the you know atrocities in the world individually which again is not not what anybody is saying 
am being implicated by these critiques. And if that is the brain space people are in, uh, you know, they just, you need to go, just go talk to somebody about that feeling because we can't really solve that for you. And it's also the same mindset that leads to people trying to become white saviors because they're just like, oh no, oh, this is terrible. I need to go fix everything. It's like, I didn't say that either, <laughs> but you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, um, I, I agree with you. I can see where that line of reasoning comes from and where it's going uh, and how a lot of the times it does end up in white saviorism and like being a white person who has tried to be an ally for my friends in various ways. Like there've definitely been moments where I'm like, okay, hang on. That's not, is that really helpful coming from me? Um, and I think there are a lot of people who are, yeah, offended on their own behalf. And it's not, at a certain point, it's not about Jane Austen. It's not about Shakespeare, whatever. It's about having that reflected back on us that we might know about something. We might even have the power to do something about it. And the implication that you chose not to do something and therefore things are bad is, I mean, it's distressing, you know, if someone came up to me and said, oh, you know, you didn't take a right turn on this random day and now someone is dead because of it, like, that would feel bad. But also that's, that doesn't really have anything to do with me. You know, I am personally aware of, like, the conditions of uh textile workers for fast fashion companies, um, but I'm not rich. I can't like buy out a factory and make sure people get a living wage. Um, and so we're, especially in the era of the internet, we're getting so much information about all of these objectively bad things that happen. And we think that simply having the knowledge should do something about it. Unfortunately, it doesn't, you know, you can, you can signal boost these stories all you want. Um, but at a certain point, there is someone who has the power to do something about this. And a lot of the time, it's their um, active choice not to change things that has gotten the world to the state that it's in. And I think what um, distresses people particularly, what you said there is important, is that we like to think of people as these like out and out villains and heroes, right? It's just easier, right? Um, whereas with a very, very small number of exceptions, very few people are purely one or the other. Like there is, like it is, it is vanishingly small, the percentage of people who are just like completely villainous or completely heroic, right? And that's not an expectation we should have of people. That they obviously not the villain part, but I mean like they expect the the pure heroism part. In fact, what I wish people would understand is, yeah, maybe you did something wrong, so now do something right. <laughs> like, it, but but people get so panicked that instead of thinking, try to do a series of things right, they think, well, I got to go fix everything myself, so I can now become a hero. It's like stop. Uh, you know, it's. I mean, I think it's all about ego, really. 
Like, like, and, and I, I, again, I understand that. And I'm saying I don't have one, right? I, I, but I understand that a lot of it is just people's pride and ego is wounded. And when we criticize a person that they have the most tenuous parasocial relationship with, because they're not even alive anymore. Um, so, cause like it, you, I will understand it more if, the, if it's a living celebrity and you go after late favorite celebrity and people are just like, I can't believe. And it's just like, all right, at least that person's like alive. But, uh, when people go after their, their, you know, people who are dead and that for, in that sense, can't even commit any more crimes or do bad things because they're sainted because they're, they're gone. Then it's just like, it's like a personal affront to people. Right. And they just, Oh my God, you're attacking my queen. Or king, whatever. Um, and to go back to what I started this thing with is that what I think people can't sit with is the fact that most of the worst things that happen happen because people don't do stuff. You know, the collective not doing adds up into a collective doing. Right, because it's a collective choice to look the other way or to prioritize yourself or whatever. Right, the the number of people who will go out of their way to harm other people who are not like truly in a psychotic state or something. Right, like it's just not that many people. Right, you know. So, but of course. When we see all the terrible things, that's the way it's presented. It's, it's always more complex than that, and people just, you know, they want everything to be a movie, I guess, you know, even though some of the best movies are more complex than that. So, <laughs> Yeah, I think what a lot of um, bad faith critics miss about not just what we're trying to do in Reclaiming Jane, but what a lot of um more progressive people in this particular fan space are trying to do. It's not about like attacking Jane Austen for who she was or who she did or didn't do. Um, We wouldn't have committed to doing this if we didn't also deeply love her work. Um, So it's, it's, it's interesting that, that we settle on the name reclaiming because that implies that there was something there originally that has been swept under the rug. Um, but I think for us, it was more um, just trying to carve out a space and saying this, this doesn't exclusively belong to these particular demographics of people. There are also things for people like us, whatever like us might mean in that context. Um, there, there are, this can be meaningful for us too. Um, but I think so many people see the barest hint of critique as immediate judgment and disavowal and saying this person must have been bad straight out. And that's just simply not what it is. You, you don't bother trying to critique something and change the conversation around it if you don't also have a very abiding love for it. The reclaiming that that's also useful because to reclaim it had to have been claimed, right? And a claim, not a, not ACC, a claim, right, is an action of a of that in this case a community or a group of critics or whatever has done over the last two hundred years or whenever her work got more popular after she passed away or whatever. But you know what I'm saying, 150 years, um, and. 
so that century plus of active claiming, that is really what I, I think and what you're saying is being challenged. It's the claim, not Jane, right? I mean, obviously, you can't call the podcast Reclaiming the Discourse Around the Work of Jane Austen, you know. But, <laughs> but you know, I mean, I guess you could, but then it would be like an academic paper, which I'm sure there have been many of that with that title and nobody reads them. Um, so, you know, I think that that, that, it, cause to me, like I said, this is, when you talk about the love and so forth, like in my book, when I, whoa, that band just crossed the, that's went down the wrong way of the street. That's dangerous. Um, I live above a bridge, so I see a lot of weird traffic stuff. Um, in my book, I specifically mention that I wouldn't be doing this nonsense, which is this sort of particular, focused on decentering whiteness and language teaching in the book, although I write about many other things. If I didn't think that language teaching could be a really valuable thing, like I, I really enjoyed it. Like even when I had a job that paid me peanuts, I could ignore that when I was in the classroom teaching. Right. Which is part of why they don't pay you anything. Cause you, when you're teaching, you're like, Oh, this is great. And they're like, Oh, my rent. Um, but uh, I, I was not saying burn it down and and there's nothing here i use inflammatory language and get people's attention but when i say like you know blow it up i mean so we can rebuild it yeah i relate to that very deeply as a trans person from the south living in the south this is my home i don't want to leave it and there are so many people like me who feel the same way um but and it's so easy for people outside that context to say, well, there's nothing good, throw the whole thing away. But then those of us who are so deeply invested in reclaiming and rehabilitating, it's just, it's it's a little infuriating to have other people say there's nothing of worth there when as someone on the inside, I can see this, it's, there's so much worth. And that's, that's how I feel a lot about Jane Austen too. That, that may seem like a little bit of a stretch, but um, even as Lauren and I are doing this kind of sometimes critical work, we're often not even very critical of Jane Austen. Um, even as we're doing that, some people want to see any critique as a direct attack and a condemnation when it's, it's, just not. It's just not. We, especially when it comes to the works of Jane Austen and the world that she lived in, we just want to bring more context and more light to the place that she was writing from and how that still connects to us today. You mentioned that about the South and all that, and, and I, I um, have two thoughts on that. And I'm not I'm specifically talking about the things that are happening in the South, but about people and the way they talk about these places. And it's not just the South. There's a lot of places where you could be saying these things about, but we live in the United States, so probably the most relevant there's two things there's the people who say well i will never go and i'm like fine don't go you don't no one asked you to go so don't go you don't need to go right so it's just like why are you saying it right you know and second of all so my job um without going too deep into it we do we work with housing developers of color right and to try to you know push against gentrification we can have a long run out discussion about whether people should be owning land at all, but if it's going to be owned, it should be us rather than the people who are trying to gentrify everything. There are a lot of black people in the South, you know, <laughs> uh, and a lot of them were invested 
because, well, first they were forced to be there, but then that was their home. And so when people say, I'm giving up on this area, but Black Lives Matter, it's like, but which Black Lives? <laughs> like, you can't, you can't, you, you can't just leave them out, right? Like, I understand if a, a particular person doesn't feel safe going to a place, so don't go. Great, fine. I, I understand. This place, I don't want to go either. Um, they're, they're not, it's different places that I don't want to go because I don't want to go to white suburbs. But like, uh, so fine, don't go. But then when you, when you look down on the entire state, first of all, even, and not to get too deep into the electoral of it all, but like even in like the deepest red states in the South, what the Republicans are like 70% of the vote, not 96, right? You know, and it's not really 70 usually, right? It's more like 60. That's like a big win. But it's like, it's not everyone, right? And then every city that you go to that has more than like 100,000 people, it is usually pretty mixed, right? And so the idea that we should just give up on these places, right? And I'm not saying I never engaged in these jokes like years ago myself because, you know, I just didn't, you know, had to get myself together but it's also like what you're saying is we should abandon everybody who we purport to care about in these places just because the state leadership because it's like again it's not even everyone in the state who supports the leadership right they, they're not winning 100 to zero um we should abandon them right now i completely support anyone who's scared of anyone to leave you know, sure, I get it. I wouldn't particularly want to be down there myself, and I'm not trying to be dismissive. It's, I live up here. It's where I'm comfortable. Um, and then you also, at the same time, though, at the same time, what I hear from people sometimes is you get people who, out of one side of their mouth, will talk about, oh, how terrible these places are. On the other side of their mouth, they'll be like, you know, but it's cheap to buy down there, so maybe I'm going to move down there. And buy. I'm just like, all right, now. <laughs> uh all right now uh if you want to do that fine i guess although frankly i'm not sure they need you down there to be not actually caring about the place and doing it for purely financial reasons again i'm not talking about people who are struggling right people who have the choice to just like i'm gonna go i'm just gonna go there um i just feel like we treat this entire region of our country, which, again, is not my home and not a place where I'm particularly comfortable, but if only because of a lack of familiarity. Like, I went to Atlanta a few weeks ago, and I had a good time. I was there for, like, three days, you know, and uh, I went to Dallas last year. Didn't love it, but it wasn't because of the Republicanness of it all, because, again, cities are usually different. <laughs> I was just like, where why is nobody walking around? This is weird. <laughs> but anyway. I just, I feel such condescension from people, not just in the North, you did in other parts of the world too. So, uh, and it bothers me because they tell it to me as if they think I'm going to agree with them because I'm from the Northeast. And I'm just like, look, I don't love that area personally myself. It's not my kind of place generally, but it is the home of, I don't want to get this wrong, but tens of millions of people and if you care about certain groups it's home to okay maybe fives of millions of people that you're supposed to care about so i don't know either you care or you don't but don't talk about these areas as if they don't matter and then turn around and say that you care yeah i feel about sort of the south the same way that i feel about austin as in I'm invested in this thing and I'm here 
because I care, but also I'm not going to get out and just abandon the whole thing to people who are making it hostile. I'm not going to abandon the South to fascists. I'm not going to abandon Jane Austen community to like white supremacists and anti-feminists. Like I just, because I care about that thing, I could not possibly leave because I have to at least be one more person saying, Hey, that's not acceptable. We can do so much better than this. And there are so many people just whose voices aren't being heard for one reason or another, depending on what the status is. I mean, it's like everybody on Twitter, uh, when, you know, the muskrat took over saying, yeah, I don't really feel like abandoning the whole place to the Nazis. <laughs> just, yeah, when you love a thing, you don't want to give it up, even if you can see all the ways. And if you love it, you probably can see all the ways that it is deeply, deeply flawed, but also how it could be so different. Well, that's what James Baldwin said about the United States, right? He says, I, uh, you, I insist upon the right to criticize her perpetually. Um, so, but it's like, where am I going to go? Like, obviously, I live in the Northeast, but I'm just saying, people, like, I'm going to leave the country. Where am I going to go? Right? Where, where, where is the place that racism doesn't exist? Tell, you, you tell me where that place is. And so, like, well, Africa. I'm like, uh, uh, first of all, it still does. It's just different. It sounds like you haven't been to Africa. But, <laughs> like, uh, I don't mean you. I mean the people who say, oh, we'll just go to Africa, you know. And not that people tell me to go to Africa, but I'm just saying, like, it's, you can see the line of thought going that if I said, where can I go, they would say, go to a majority black place. And I'm like, I would love to, I, I'm, I'm hoping to raise my son in a couple of years in a majority, majority black city in the United States, but wouldn't be very far away because I'm not going to leave my job. I mean, I guess I could, but not for that reason. But the point is when, and let's be clear, white people with money say, I'm going to just leave the country again. If someone truly feels like they are personally in danger, do what you need to do. But I don't hear that from those people, right? Like the people who truly feel like their life is in danger usually don't have enough money to just leave. <laughs> like, they, or they already live in a place where they feel like more secure, you know? So, and then there's like, I know there are people who don't have families and I'm not trying to criticize these people. But for most people, so what you're saying is, I'm going to leave, and I'm just going to leave my family here. I'm going to leave my friends here. And you all suffer under this regime, right? I'm just going to go. All right. Now I'm going to move to Canada. Although I do enjoy, and I've said this on the show before, not enjoy, but just, yeah, I enjoy uh, the fact that it was, that, that it's been revealed over the last few years that they have the ju just as bad of a history as we do. They just, just a different. And I'm just like, well, we've been telling you this. You didn't want to listen to them. So then they, they were just like, I can't believe we had these great. I can't believe. I'm like, they've been telling you this. This was so frustrating about it. <laughs> yeah. And those people who are so willing to tell you to just, well, pack up and leave. That also smacks a little bit of some neocolonialism. Like, oh, I could just go wherever. I could just pick a place that's better than this, and it'll be perfectly ready to receive me, and it'll meet all of my needs. Um, okay, are you also going to be working to improve that place and make it better for everyone else who lives there? I kind of suspect not. And that's, a, I mean, like, to lead into sort of a conclusion here, when I go you know, I talk a lot about my experience in Korea and my book and then a lot of my work, right? And, you know, I was 21, so I didn't really know any better about certain things. And I'm not saying that that gave me an excuse for certain things, but like, 
all I knew was they were offering me a job, and I didn't have one. So I was like, okay. And then again, I don't blame anyone for taking a job if they don't have a job, right? You need to pay your bills. But for the people who say, well, just pack up and go teach somewhere. Again, it is not inherently wrong to go teach somewhere, right? It depends on what you do when you're there. But clearly these people have not experienced doing that when you're not white. Because it is very different. It wasn't it wasn't hostile. I want to be clear. I didn't feel any hostility in these places. I mean, maybe one or two people, but but less so than here. However, you get to see a whole different side of things when you're not quite part of the prize group that goes to these places. So what? If I said, again, if I got some particularly amazing job in like a Japan or something, I'm not saying I wouldn't take it. But I mean, you know, I'm talking to my wife and all that. But I just mean like, if things got quote unquote so bad that I just like, I gotta go. I don't know that I'd be safe, at least not psychologically in some of these other places. Right. And when you hear that, you know, it's not like the UK treats, you know, queer people well, right. They're not like the good place to go for that. Uh, and it's not like the rest of Europe. Oh, I guess maybe we're not in Europe anymore. Whatever. Uh, you know, treats people of color well, right? People talk, people always talk about how Scandinavia is like this perfect place. I'm like, well, maybe you should ask different people who live there <laughs> or people who had to leave because they weren't welcome there, right? That weird subplot that they did in a half-assed way in Frozen 2. But if they'd really deeply explored it, they would have made some points. Because, like, there are indigenous people in Scandinavia who have not been treated well, you know, but we don't talk about it. It's like, oh, everyone's blonde and white. I'm like, that's not how things started. Anyway, Emily, so I thank you for coming on here. I, I think this was a really valuable conversation. I found it to be a valuable conversation. And I think that the conversations that you are having, because honestly, that's what I think podcasts are, is conversations, are, you know, something that's necessary um, because the discourse around these, these saints that we have is not useful to anyone. And frankly, it's not useful to their legacy for it to be seen as uncomplicated and, uh, you know, flattened into a person that literally didn't exist because there is no person who exists the way the discourse makes them seem. Yeah, we're doing both them and ourselves a disservice if we refuse to see any kind of nuance about the lives of real people. And I, I think that it's so much more instructive and valuable to people to present these people as complicated because we are, too. Because when you present someone as some some uh, uncomplicated saint, then how can you live up to it? Or the only way to live up to it is to become like a savior. Right. Whereas if you're like. You know, he did X, Y, like like a John Brown did all this stuff for, for black people, but he wasn't all that great to the indigenous. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm saying you could still try and do good things even if you've done bad things, right? You could try and put forth what I think is genuinely, you know, because people don't understand it because of the sainted way, subversive writing. Well, you know, kind of knowing about what was going on. Like you could do both. And I think more people need to understand that having participated, I mean, there's a limit, obviously, but having participated in things that they look back on and are like, you know, I really shouldn't have been a part of that. 
doesn't mean you can't make better choices. And that seems such a boring and mundane thing to say, but it's the only way we're going to ever get out of this because we've all done some shit. <laughs> we've all been a part of some shit and uh we're all going to be because that's just the world we live in. And so the best thing we can do was try to be uh part of better things going forward. Absolutely. So, yeah.